MTV's The Stakes, a rundown of the week's news without the talking heads. We're like that song that you set as the morning alarm on your phone to wake you up, but instead of hating us, you love to listen to us more and more and more and more and more and more. I'm Julianne Ross, Deputy Editor of Politics and News here at MTV, and filling in for your host, Holly Anderson. As always, we've got a great show for you, so grab your coffee or tea, put in your earbuds, and let's get to it. This week, we have MTV News politics writer Jamie Fuller talking with Dr. Yuval Naria to investigate something a lot of us probably identify with, the connection between the 24-hour news cycle and anxiety. We are becoming sometimes a group of strangers that are connected more than to our computer and cell phones rather than to each other. But first... In March of 2016, North Carolina passed House Bill 2, commonly known as a bathroom bill. HB 2 limits civil rights protections throughout the state for LGBT people. One of those protections included an ordinance made by the city of Charlotte that banned discrimination against transgender people for using the bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity. The outcry against HB 2 was swift. Businesses took their dollars elsewhere, and editorials wondered who would be stationed outside of the state's public restroom to scrutinize that people's birth certificates match the bathrooms they used. But the law stood. Then in December, a deal between Republican lawmakers and Charlotte Democrats was stuck. The state would repeal HB 2 if the city also repealed the anti-discrimination ordinance that spawned it. At the last minute, though, the deal fell through. And as of now, HB 2 still stands. MTV News political reporter Jane Koston called transgender equality advocate Erica Lakowitz to ask what the Trump presidency means for her fight to repeal HB2 and advance equality in her home state. This is what Erica had to say. We felt such a huge blow to our legitimacy as citizens when HB2 passed because we've worked very hard to get to the point where we had a non-discrimination ordinance that was all-encompassing. But we've, we've seen a progression where there's been a realization that transgender people are here. And I think after all of the education and awareness that we've been bringing since HB2's passage doing public speaking, I mean, we've been doing this for years prior to to get adoption from our own city. So we started out two years, grassroots effort, going out, meeting with people. Hey, I'm trans. This is what we are. We're not anything else but people. We're good people. <laughs> We're not sexual predators, I can tell you that. Um, we had a, a certain amount of camaraderie that came about from this within our own community. The L, G, and B, along with the T. So we had that unison, and we had the backing of large organizations. We had HRC here. We had uh, Quality North Carolina. We had... Um, uh, a lot of major sporting uh, venues come to our aid. We had big companies come to our aid and say, you know, we're going to back you. So what HB2 has done for the community is thrust to the national platform transgender people and transgender rights. In fact, we've seen that solidified also by President Barack Obama, who has recognized us, I want to say, even most recently at his farewell address. When we hear that, we say our ears perk up. I mean, we're so used to getting scraps. We're so used to this rhetoric, this harmful rhetoric. It happens more often and in, in, in more places than, than I can disclose. I've been out for, for so many years. <laughs> and I've been dealing with a lot of this. 
being misgendered and being told that, you know, the, the men's room is over there and, you know, actually using the men's room because I don't feel pretty enough, you know, ends up, you know, putting me at, at risk. And it has put me at risk. I mean, I've, I've had my share of people taunting me. I've been assaulted before and, and it's no, it's no joy, but I'm older now. And I think looking back, if I were to ask you even 10 years ago, five years ago, how many transgender people you knew, it would be relatively small. A lot of us stay in hiding. So, you know, they, they, they use these different angles. They first paint us at a, as a sexual predator, and they see the support that we're getting. Then they say, okay, well, let's go back to the table. That didn't work. Now we're more concerned about the average man who's going to pretend to be transgender using a bathroom so we can't let anyone who's transgender use the bathroom to only receive a compromise to that as, well, for those who are born in states where you can't have your birth certificate updated or, you know, you, you would like to register your genitalia with the Department of Motor Vehicles so you can get your, your paper so you can use the facilities, I think goes above and beyond what a standard person like myself who knows myself to be a woman should ever have to go through. <laughs> I've always been a Democrat, but you know, I have worked with both sides and I see things from both perspectives. And where I see progress or see progress made is presidents who can embrace diversity, who take the time to meet constituents, understand their struggles, and to, to defend them. And, and I felt that with Hillary, uh, I felt that with Bernie. I felt that with, you know, all the more progressive thinkers, you know, the, the rights that we have fought so hard for. I mean, even basic rights for, for, for you know, health care. <laughs> you know, you're now going to be soon telling a kid that, no, you can't go see a doctor, for goodness sakes. My God. So when I see the divisive rhetoric during the entire Trump campaign, it makes it very hard to not want to talk over somebody who's a Trump supporter, Donald Trump himself, to say, hey, what are we doing here? You're saying publicly that you'll embrace, you know, Caitlyn Jenner can use whatever facility she wants in my hotel. You know, I, I hear the lip service from that, but I can tell you as somebody who has worked very hard to get Hillary elected, because I know having been on that campaign, having met with those who do support I saw a commonality of inclusion, of a mode of inclusion, where we wouldn't have that fear. Being trans carries with it a, a, such an immense fear. And it's because of historical issues of loss. You know, the, the, the percentages of our, our suicide, the amount of job loss that we assume. I mean, how much, how much survival sex can one person have because they've been thrown out of their house and they're homeless? You know, and they just need to eat, and they're and they're peddling their bodies. You know, and I, and I see Donald Trump not going to bat for that part of our community. Those who really need the help, I see the pandering to special interest groups. I see, you know, I mean, if we look at his cabinet, I guess the the one who donates the most gets elected, right? So we have a a divide in our hearts going forward. One where we felt that crushing blow of Hillary's loss 
we look at it as a bigger issue because of the progress that North Carolina has made. North Carolina brought the rights fight, an example to other states to say, hey, there is economic challenges that will come if you pass bills that are discriminatory, such as HB2. That was transgender equality advocate Erica Lakowitz speaking to political reporter Jane Koston. You can hear more from Erica on Facebook or Twitter at EricaStar76. We have Jamil Smith, our senior national correspondent at MTV News, interviewing Sherilyn Eiffel, the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Sherilyn, can you tell us what the NAACP Legal Defense Fund is and exactly what you do there so that we can get an idea of how your job's about to get more difficult? Uh, thanks so much, Jamil. You know, I think most people know the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. They just don't know that they know the NAACP <laughs> Legal Defense Fund. Uh, so we're the organization that was created in 1940 by Thurgood Marshall uh, and um, is an organization really of lawyers, um, uh, you know, who have been really shaping and defining and um, in the early years creating civil rights law in the United States. Um, the, the Legal Defense Fund, we're sometimes called, or LDF, uh, is the organization that litigated Brown versus Board of Education, and almost every uh, major civil rights case um, in the years after Brown, um, in the years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we were Martin Luther King's lawyer, we represented the marchers in Selma, um, you know, kind of almost in every instance uh, we were there. And sometimes that meant individual cases. We represented Muhammad Ali in his case to get his boxing license back in New York and in uh, his successful case in the Supreme Court having his conviction uh, for dodging the draft thrown out. So sometimes it's in individual cases, but most often uh, it's in cases uh, involving African-American communities seeking to, to be free of discrimination and to have equal access, equal opportunity, uh, and to challenge uh, injustices in the criminal justice system. I want to ask you about something that's in the news. Uh, I know that you issued a statement on it. The Baltimore agreement to approve spending city money on police reforms that were agreed to under a consent decree with the U.S. Department of Justice. Can you tell us what that's about and also, you know, essentially what the NAACP LDF's role in that is? Sometimes our role is as um, supporters of communities who are seeking to vindicate their civil rights uh, and who are really on the outside of a process. So, for example, after Freddie Gray was killed, um, there was a case that was brought by the Baltimore State's Attorney against the six officers who were involved um, in Mr. Gray's death. Right. That is a case that is between the, you know, the, the state and the individual police officers. So. There are no residents of the city that are really involved in that case. In fact, the theory is that the state represents the city. Um, and then you had an instance in which the Department of Justice was now investigating the city to determine whether the city was engaged in a pattern and practice of unconstitutional policing practices. We really regarded our role as supporting the community to have a voice in that process in particular to be able to talk about the ways in which they had undergone and been subject to unconstitutional policing. Um, and we try to provide you know, education where we can so that the community understands what is this process? What is this consent decree? What's our role in it? And now that the consent decree is signed, um, you know, this is in some ways the most important part, and we have tried to emphasize this to the folks that we've been working with, 
that the monitoring of um, the provisions of that consent decree and ensuring mm -hmm. that the police department and the city um, really complies with the provisions of the consent decree is a role the community has to play a role in uh, and has to be aware of what those provisions are and has to have a mechanism to have their voice heard and be prepared to hold the city's feet to the fire um, so that that consent decree can produce the results that it's designed to produce. So as I said, sometimes we're litigating, sometimes we're intervening with legislative bodies and really trying to represent the interests of African Americans, not just in Baltimore, but in a number of cities where we're working on policing reform um, to try and make sure that those the real experiences of black people as they interact with law enforcement around the country can be heard. Now, that may be a greater challenge going forward. Of course, we're recording this on the Wednesday before the inauguration of Donald Trump. So what preparations have you and the LDF been undergoing as this Trump era approaches? Well, I think there's no question, and I sat through both days of the hearing of the Attorney General nominee, Jeff Sessions. If he is confirmed, there's no question that he is not a supporter of uh, pattern and practice investigations or the consent decrees that um, they result in. The Obama administration conducted twice as many pattern and practice investigations, I think, as maybe had ever been done before of police departments. Um, I do not expect the Department of Justice under the Trump administration to to be engaged in that way. That being said, all the cases challenging stop and frisk happened without the participation of the Justice Department. So, um, you know, we certainly have um, within our toolbox, the ability ourselves to sue police departments where we believe we can gather the evidence to demonstrate that there's been unconstitutional policing. There's been so many advances, or at least in awareness with regards to police brutality, police violence. How bad is this going to get? And so, you know, as far as if Jeff Sessions becomes attorney general, if, you know, say, you know, whoever his deputy is and all the other people in the Justice Department start ignoring these cases or at least sort of, you know, start lionizing cops. Well, I think this is a great question, Jamil, because I think one of the tremendous advantages that occurred over the last four or five years, and and they happened um, not, you know, solely because of the um, Obama administration, Justice Department. They happened first and foremost because people in communities like Ferguson and New York and around the country, um, you know, said no more, spoke out. And because we had, you know, now cell phone videos of some of these activities, I mean, we've been working on issues of police violence against unarmed African-Americans for decades. So the narrative had shifted in important ways, I think, that um, should not be underestimated. What I think we're about to see, Jamil, is a narrative reset. Um, because, you know, part of, of Jeff Sessions' Um, you know, theory of, 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 of his role as, as potentially as the attorney general is about kind of restoring the morale of police officers and, <laughs> um, and about talking about what, you know, the, the, the greatness of police officers. Now, I fully respect that police officers do an incredibly difficult job. Uh, and I am uh, always engaged in respectful conversations, um, you know, with police officers, at least from my side. But the kind of ignoring of the reality of of bad policing, which Jeff Sessions at his confirmation hearings last week said is about, um, he basically said a few bad apples, but he said about a couple of individuals and that whole police departments are being maligned because of the actions of a couple of individuals, suggests to me that you didn't read the Ferguson report um, or you didn't read the Baltimore report. Mm -hmm. So um, the the unwillingness 
and the refusal to deal with the fact that there are systemic issues and cultural issues in policing, which I think even some police leaders, you know, have suggested exists, the, the recognition of, of bias and implicit bias and so forth, is an attempt to kind of reshape the narrative back to one that is uncritical, one that is um, myopic, one that turns a blind eye to the evidence that th- these are more than just individual cases, but that there is something systemic that's wrong. And I think that's, that's, that's really going to be devastating, because even in places where, where local jurisdictions can convince um, you know, the, the local police department and the, and the political leadership to come to the table around policing reform, um, they're, they're going to find the headwinds against them are stronger because of this change narrative. Sherilyn, I, I can't let you go without asking you about your cousin, Gwen. And let me just say I'm very sorry for your loss. Uh, I want to ask you how we in the press in this era that we're entering, how can we better follow in her example, do you feel, to make sure that readers and viewers and listeners get informed? Well, thanks for asking about Gwen. You know, Gwen and I would have conversations and we'd very often um, be a little bit contentious with each other around issues of the day. And, and we'd have so much fun having these conversations because she'd always say, well, see, you know, you're a civil rights lawyer and I'm a journalist, right? <laughs> and And so we were always... Um, aware of that kind of difference in professional stance uh, as we assessed what was happening, you know, around us. And what I always saw was, because uh, I'm an advocate and I never, you know, I'm not, I don't apologize for that. That's, that's what I am. I, I have a, a particular position and a stance. And Gwen was a questioner, you know, she, she really could hold something up and turn it around and, and, and uh, really try to examine it. Um, but, you know, there was a line you know she also knew what was right and what was not right (laughs) and (laughs) and she was willing to stand up for that um but always with a kind of a calm and a kind of a grace i think that that gave it so much more power you know because it was unassailable and she didn't pull the trigger all the time you know she 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 saved she saved she built capital and when so when she expended capital uh it was usually very powerful and you noticed it I wrote a piece after uh, the president-elect nominated Jeff Sessions to be attorney general, and I suggested at that time that we're dealing with a president and administration that really is not at all moved by norms or ethics, and that in a circumstance like that, law becomes really important, and it really was an appeal to the power of the rule of law at this moment, which really relies on facts. You know, it's a pillar of our democracy because... It, 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 when it's working right, um, it, it provides a uh, more or less equal platform for people to, you know, advance um, what, what is right. And I think that, you know, every profession has its rules. And um, although we can't get too caught up in our rules so that we can't speak truth to power, we do have to operate at the highest levels of professionalism. And so I, I think of that as a lawyer, but I think that's also true for journalists. I think that's true for doctors and psychiatrists. You know, when I hear someone talking about waterboarding and that it's a great idea, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that the medical profession will, you know, will operate at the highest levels of professionalism. So I think all of us who have been trained and have professional standards and obligations should be um, advancing those and should be operating at the highest level of those in a time when I think for many people, it'll feel like the wild, wild west. Sherilyn Eiffel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jamil. 
That was MTV News Senior National Correspondent Jamil Smith speaking with President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, Sherilyn Eiffel. Visit www.naacpldf.org for more info. is coming soon, and we're all getting stressed out. As part of the MTV News Look Ahead coverage, politics writer Jamie Fuller took a deep dive into the science of why. Here's Jamie. Thanks, Julie. Has the news been leaving you feeling overwhelmed lately? It seems like everywhere we turn, there's a new story looking to grab our attention. Notifications buzz from our pocket to our wrists, And there seems to be this ever-increasing battle between being informed and being left behind. But what is that doing to our brains? As part of my recent piece on MTVNews.com, Fearing Fear Itself After the 2016 Election, I decided to find out. My producer and I traveled uptown to Columbia University's Medical Center in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan to join Dr. Yuval Neary in his office. He's a professor of medical psychology to find out how to handle this barrage of information while still practicing self-care. So I'm sorry about the tie. Usually I don't have a tie. From the window, we had a clear view of the Hudson River and the George Washington Bridge. And in that room, Dr. Neria's phones were turned away and he was practicing the serenity he preaches in his work. So personally, I I was attracted to the um, to psychology in general and to post-traumatic stress disorder in particular because I grew up in in Israel where the need to participate in two wars before I came to this country. I came as a young researcher already, but before that, I was you know I was in the military as any other Israeli and um, and as a soldier. Um, participated in a very traumatic war uh, called the Yom Kippur War, Yom Kippur 1973 war, as a very young uh, kid. And um, what I took, and I was injured and um, also decorated. Um, and uh, what I what I took from this experience is um, a sincere commitment to to understand the mental health effects of trauma really to understand them as fully as I can and to help uh, people who are traumatized with anxiety specifically what's happening in our brain the levels of anxiety um, are pretty high uh, before during and after the election and I think that's something that we can recognize as a public. That's true. Our brain really needs an involvement, a more cognitive, uh, you know, component in the brain in order to distinguish between what is safe and what is dangerous. Now, people with anxiety, anxious patients, which is actually many, many, many people uh, in our society are kind of suffering or demonstrating, you know, significant level of anxiety have problems in both sides. Their amygdala is usually hyperactivated or overactivated. There is a lot of input coming from the amygdala to the brain. 
the world is, is, is not safe, you know, we need to be worried, they are afraid to go to sleep or not able to go to sleep, they need some help when they go to sleep. Uh, prefrontal cortex or those cortical areas that involved in are not doing their job accurately. The truth is, we're living at a point where, broadly speaking, life is better than it's ever been in human history. And yet it's easier than ever, too, to find access to bad information that makes you stressed. Uh, how does that affect your job? Well, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, there is really the world around us is provoking us and kind of manipulating uh, our brain you know, quite a bit and in so many ways. And especially we, when we are so exposed to our smartphones and computers and digital uh, material on the TV. So, you know, bad things or stressful things are all over and, and they affect uh, our lives. In fact, one of the most interesting um, studies that I ever made uh, was after the attacks of 9-11, where we suddenly discovered that many people with post-traumatic stress disorder, full-blown PTSD, not necessarily live in, uh, in, in lower Manhattan or, uh, or in Washington. You know, they can be, you know, uh, a 30-year-old woman in, in, uh, in Detroit who, um, who watched the attacks um, online or over TV. Uh, sometimes again and again and again, and those, you know, uh, material is um, is communicated to us and eventually uh, developed severe post-traumatic stress symptoms that deserve treatment. So the media and the, um, and I'm not kind of blaming, I'm just describing, you know, um, uh, you know, the complexity of, of what we call exposure to stress or exposure to trauma, the media is really enable us or facilitate all sorts of new type of exposures to stress that we really didn't know about them before. Communities are changed really, um, both kind of metaphorically but also physically. There are less and less kind of simple community resources that you know, uh, not long time ago, we were able to mediate um, positively um, all sorts of bad things. You know, old people got friends and, and, and kids had uh, their own kind of community activities that were very special or very uh, specific uh, to each community. And now there is really, we, we, are, we are, because the world is becoming... Um, like a, like a big village, we are kind of losing a, a, a little bit of those. We are becoming sometimes a group of strangers that are connected more than to our computer and cell phones rather than to each other. Most younger people have never existed in a world where there hasn't been a 24-hour news cycle, where they haven't had social media. When we live in that kind of environment, what do you th what do you think that means for mental health treatment going forward? 
Well, I think there, there is much to learn and to study about that. It's new for all of us uh, in terms of the intensity, uh, questions of addiction to addiction to cell phones, to smartphones, addiction to Facebook, email, texting, um, anxieties that may be associated with this addiction because if you don't look at your phone, you know, uh, or the phone is not with you, or there is no battery, people, people can you know, experience anxiety, but there is, but the intensity um, is an issue. Um, I'm not sure our brain is really, um, you know, deals w well with numerous stimuli for so long um, and with such a diversity. And so I think there is a lot of studies, there is a lot to understand here. For our listeners who are trying to think of preventative measures that they can take going forward when they're dealing with anxiety, uh, what would you recommend? Dealing with anxiety can be also very much a result of lack of sleep, kind of overly stress and not doing anything about that. Sleep very, very important um, and exercise is especially important. By the way, exercise is found to improve not only physical health, which of course it does, but also improve mental health, improve memory, improve concentration, improve learning. So really e physical exercise and walking and running and going to the gym and swimming and all of the above is very, very important. And if People, you know, even people who don't have a lot of resources, if they can afford uh, two or three times a, a week of physical exercise, I really recommend it um, for, for all those reasons that I mentioned. If somebody is really suffering from more chronic, untreated and severe anxiety, uh, I would really recommend seeking help. And the earlier people doing it, the better. So we found like a very nice correlation between timing of help-seeking and the effectiveness of the care that people got. We, we see that with war veterans all the time, you know, war veterans delay treatment, they avoid treatment, they try to hold on, and usually uh, with a big price, you know, they are become sicker and sicker, they used all sorts of kind of self-medication techniques in order to get over nightmares or or sleep deprivation, etc. So seeking help is really very, very important. So just to summarize, sleep, physical exercise, and treatment if needed. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That was MTV News politics writer Jamie Fuller. Check out the Inauguration Week section at the top of mtvnews.com for more coverage. That piece was produced by James T. Green with additional sound design by Gabriel Killauer. out this week's show, our own poet-in-residence Marcus Ellsworth leaves us with a poetic call to action. To the young and the fearless, you are not the first to walk this shadowed path named America. This road was not paved by presidents, though they stand as markers defining distance gained and hazards along the way. These cobblestones were laid by the hands of dreaming slaves and hammered in place by feet marching from Selma. 
with suffragettes starving for the right to vote and queer people at Stonewall rioting and building barricades, our way was made. Not by those who stand still, staring at their feet, begging for the light to draw near, but by those who stepped forward and fought for us to see the way more clearly. There are those who will try to trip us and slow us down. They stand with their backs to the light, turned away from our collective freedom, but we must move around and over and through them, as those who have paved the way did time and again. So clear the path however you are able. Help those who stumble and stand in the way of those who would stop us for fear of being left in the dark in turn. Do not let their fear of another's liberation become your own. We must keep moving forward. We are not the first to walk this shadowed path, but together we can be a beacon showing others the way. That was MTV News poet and residence Marcus Ellsworth performing his piece, The Road We Walk, Young and Fearless, with additional sound design by James T. Green. I'm Julianne Ross, and those are the stakes. Did you know you can have the show personally delivered to your super magical internet device every time we release a new episode? Crazy, right? Search the stakes on wherever you listen to podcasts, like iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and tap subscribe. See, it was that easy. You'll be glad you did. While you're there, take a minute and leave us a review and rate us five stars. That's how others find out about the show. Also, tell your special life people about us. Send a tweet, snap a selfie of you listening, post it on your Facebook, wherever. Every little bit helps. If you're curious about what else we make here in Radioland, we have a full list of shows at podcast.mtv.com. The Stakes is produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, James T. Green, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Thanks to everyone that submitted and reported stories this week. Get out there, take action, and thanks for listening. Yeah! Ha, 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 ha.